I am joined today with Mr. Bart Griffith. Thank you very much, Bart, for coming into the podcast. We're doing it virtual, but it's been a long time coming, and it's uh, it's exciting to see you. It's been a couple years since we caught up, so I've been very excited to to reconnect and and hear about your time uh, as the president of Shady Side Academy. Well, thanks, Jake, and it's wonderful to be with you and with the Gilman community, at least virtually. Uh, admire your persistence. You know, this, this has been, uh, like you said, a long time coming, but uh, glad we finally found the opportunity to, to make it work. Sorry I couldn't be there with you in person. All good. We, uh, we've we got the setup here. It feels like you're in the room with this big monitor that, that we have in the in the tech room or the podcast studio. So we're all set and ready to go. Well, um, as, as I like to say, Jake, I'm, I'm a fan of the pod. Um, I have I've been uh, admiring your work through this project uh, from a distance, and um, I'm sure, like many people that you know don't live in Baltimore but want to stay connected to Gilman and everything that's happening there and the life of the community, um, the, the podcast has been a really great opportunity to do so. So I listen to it in the car or when I'm out on walks or whatever else. So uh, thanks again for the service, and uh, it, mean, it means a lot to everyone that, that cares about the school. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Um... Yeah, I think that's one of the coolest things about it is I've gotten a few emails from people that I've never met before, alums, people who are just, you know, finding the podcast somehow online. And I think it's pretty cool to to connect with some people, some some greyhounds out there in the world. So I appreciate you checking it out. Yeah, so Bart, sure. Bart, you're pretty you're pretty active on social media on on Twitter and Instagram. Um and I was just curious about your role as the president of Shady Side, and maybe why it's important for you to be online like you are and be active on the social channels. Um, because I do know that a lot of heads of schools do have presence online. And I'm just curious about maybe the role of social media for you as, you know, the head of a, of a school. Yeah, thank you. We've got a really talented communications team here at Shadyside, and when I came on board in the summer of 2019, it, it really was a recommendation that 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 they made, um, and it, it really is the the root of or the root cause is um, the configuration of Shadyside Academy. So, so we are a multi-campus structure. Um, we, we have uh, four different campuses. We have two lower schools, a middle school, and then an upper school. Uh, the the One of the lower schools and, and the middle school and the upper school are all sort of almost like the, the tri-school, sort of all within about a quarter mile of, of one another, but nonetheless still, you know, a pretty decent walk. Um, and then we have another lower school uh, that's probably six to eight miles from sort of that nexus of the other three campuses. And so visibility for you know, the president of, of Shadyside um, is challenging and, and certainly, you know, in a different way than it is for maybe Henry um, at Gilman, where he walks out of his you know front door and uh, in Cary Hall and, and goes, you know, 20 or 30 yards to the lower school or to the middle school. Um, for me, I have to dedicate essentially a day of the week to head to one of our lower schools. I have to arrange my calendar really intentionally to be present and um, visible on on the other two campuses here um, in, in uh, sort of our suburban uh, uh, stronghold. So um, it was a way for me to be visible and and connect uh, with with the community um, uh, in in such such a fashion that would maybe transcend some of the 
you know, geographic uh, distance and 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 sort of um, separation that that's just sort of the nature of our our school. And it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, I said I'll do it, but I, I want to make sure that I do it in such a way that allows sort of my personality and my connection with with students and and with the community as a whole to to come through. So. Uh, I was really active in the first couple of years. I've been taking more and more grief now for um, a, a reduced frequency of posts. So um, maybe in the coming months and, and on the heels of this conversation, I'll be pretty re-inspired to get some fresh content out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to keep up. It's like a whole new universe out there that you have to devote time and energy to in addition to all the things that you're doing on a, you know, in a personal face-to-face -face basis as president. But it is cool to see someone who's running a school also have a presence, you know, on the internet too. Well, there are a lot of students I've noticed that um, maybe because of the office or just the nature of teenagers will engage me more directly and more authentically through that online space, you know, whether it's a, a DM message or, or a comment on a post of mine, then they will in in person mm -hmm. um and you know not that that's something that um i would celebrate but i think it's a reality of how a lot of kids you know um engage and, and in particular um engage me at this at this moment um the the handle for my instagram account is ssa prez and a lot of the students you know instead of referring to me or calling me mr griffith will see me on campus and, you know say ssa prez you know or whatever <laughs> um just as a result of the the instagram uh, post so um, you know, it, it is what it is. And um, I, I try to keep it all in balance and all yeah. of that. But it's been a sort of a fun tool to play with. Um, and I learn more and more about it every, every, every with every post. Yeah, I think that's something that I notice sometimes in my classroom, too. Sometimes having a conversation in person and going from student to student, like I'm kind of used to, it doesn't go the way you want. People are shy in the room. People don't want to share. But some of the tools that I actually learned through the Penn Fellowship Program, like the, the Canvas discussion board, for instance, where you throw up a question on there and then the students engage with each other digitally, they have so much to say and so many awesome ideas that maybe they're not willing to sh share vocally in class, but through the computer screen, they're very, you know, very willing to do that. And it's just, it's kind of interesting. It is a reality of the time that we're living in. I, I can remember you know, when I was teaching a lot of English, particularly when um, those technologies became more more in vogue. Um, it would have been very hard for me to guess uh, what students posted what content, um, just based on how they interact, sort of in a, a an in person sort of live you know, verbal discussion. Um, and uh, that 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 was really telling, you know, for for me uh, at the time. And you're right. The, uh, and it, I think it sort of speaks to some of our bias in schools uh, for those sort of extra extroverted kids. We sometimes sort of privilege uh, their participation or or um, you know understand or interpret them in, in ways that are probably uh, more favorable than we might the more introverted kids at a at a Harkness table or or in a in a class discussion. So, so Bart, where did you kind of get your start in education? I mean, kind of going back to your time, maybe at Shadyside Academy, you had a great experience there, uh, maybe in your upbringing, but what led you to want to enter the field of education in the first place? And this might be something that has to do with a lot of different 
avenues that you took growing up, but why do you think you decided on that route? Well, having listened to to the pod now for a couple of years, I'll I'll offer something that I think is probably a a running theme, at least as I've heard it with uh, many of the teachers you've interviewed. Um, It all started with summer camp for me. Um, quite, quite frankly, uh, my, my parents have a, a small lake cottage in Chautauqua, New York, um, which is in western New York, a little bit west of, of Buffalo um, on a lake that's a, about 20 miles long. And, and there was a day camp, not an overnight camp, but, but a day camp that I started going to um, sort of fifth grade all the way through maybe my sophomore year of, of high school. Uh, number one, I loved the counselors that were there. Um, they were, you know, always about four or five years uh, older than me, but you know, high school or early college age um, people, and and they uh, it engaged me in a different way that than I'd ever been engaged, maybe by my elementary or middle school teachers, you know, in the schoolhouse. Um, so I, I got this sense that being a counselor was really very important. And then when I was 16, I became a counselor. Uh, at, at the camp and for the first time had that experience of, um, you know, the power that goes along with being in a role like that, but also um, the, the potential that you have to influence and, and shape and, and inspire young people, even if it's a summer camp um, where the context is swimming and kickball and, uh, you know, ravine, um, capture the flag or whatever else. Uh, th- those were really powerful foundations. And um, I think for the first time got me thinking about a life in school. And then um, that was only reinforced sort of during my final years at Shadyside as a student. Um, we are uh, partially a boarding school um, at the time, a five day boarding school, sort of similar to McDonough. Um, and so there were a number of faculty that lived on campus uh, with their families, sort of just like you have it at Gilman. Um, and there was a teacher coach sort of model and i looked at that lifestyle as a student at 17 or 18 years old and 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 understood it as uh highly desirable and and the kind of life that i wanted to lead um i was a little bit like the the boy in that movie um rushmore um maybe a little bit more focused but i wanted to do everything and uh, my interview answer to this question sometimes is I, I liked prep school so much that I wanted to do it for a living <laughs> um, and really never wanted it to end. And um, so from that perspective, I got, um, you know, a start in independent schools right out of uh, graduate school. There was a time where I felt like um, as I was coming out of college that uh, I would be really focused on urban education. And I've always been interested in the role that education has to play in um, promoting democracy and, and equity. And, and so I spent um, a year at uh, Columbia doing a, a master's degree, um, M- an MAT degree, and uh, taught sort of through some student teaching um, programs connected to that um, graduate school in New York City public, public schools, um, which again was really formative and, and only reinforced my uh, desire to teach and, and to, to approach teaching um, from the perspective of know its importance to democracy and and um all we can be as a country and world love it uh so when i came to gilman you were the first person i met and i always tell people that i had a pretty nice entry into teaching because it wasn't like here's a textbook go teach your class and you know like a lot of people get thrown into the deep end with teaching they just 
show up day one and you got to figure it out. And for, in some ways, that's a good way to learn. But I had a very excellent program that I started and I had great mentorship between you and Brian Ledyard and, and some of the other teachers here at Gilman, uh, department head Patrick Hastings. I mean, I, I had a very cushioned entry into the world of education. Um, when you started, did you have a similar experience where you had mentorship, had figures that taught you how to teach, or were you thrown into the classroom and kind of had to figure it out on your own? I don't know that I had the, the exact same experience you have. I mean, I, I've been uh, envious of the Penn Fellows for, for some time now. I mean, that really is a, a tremendous supportive resource um, and, and springboard from which to start a, a career in, in the classroom. Uh, but but I will say that the the year that I spent at, at Teachers College uh, Columbia was was really valuable in that it it fostered a sense of intentionality and um, developed a, um, a, philo a an evolving philosophy of, of education that I don't think I would have entered into the work um, very well without. So in other words, you spend part of that year reading you know, Dewey and, and people like that and all that they sort of saw um, undergirding education and its, and its value. Um, I read a ton about sort of pedagogy related to the, the teaching of, of English and, and language arts and, you know, sort of schooled in reader response criticism and, and new criticism and all the different ways that um, we, we approach uh, literature and um, you know I, I think again as a 23 24 year old it was really important to have that foundation and um, and a sort of level of forethought and and research um, sort of behind my initial days in in the classroom um, not that that solved everything I mean I certainly faced a lot of challenges and made a ton of mistakes um, early on uh, that that I learned much from but um, I, I would definitely argue for, um, uh, young and, and early career teachers to do all they can to avoid the sort of sink or swim um, approach that I think a lot of American schools and school systems take. Um, I, I had a lot of colleagues at my first school, Westminster, that you know essentially said that their initial guidance was, you know, here, here, here are the books. Mm -hmm. um, good luck. And um, Many of those people became excellent classroom teachers, but uh, but I think um, my foundation definitely facilitated that. But um, the work that you know we were able to to design and the, the model that was built, um, and I'm sure it continues to evolve through the the Penn Fellowship and and the residency there, um, is is really the Rolls Rolls Royce. So hopefully that's something um, that can be replicated and um, continue to be scaled in American education. I know that's part of Penn's motivation um, in doing that. Uh, the belief being that at independent schools, they can get things up and running and learn from them, you know, a lot more quickly than they might be able to in some of the, you know, bureaucracies that uh, are at the heart of a lot of the, the public system. Now, I assume at Shadyside, there's a similar point of entry for early teachers or some type of program or mentorship model where they get support and guidance as they start their careers. What does that look like at Shadyside? Uh, so we have a new teacher cohort um, at Shadyside that, that goes through sort of initial um, induction um, and, and onboarding experience in the summer uh, prior to the start of their year. Um, and then they have a, a monthly 
uh, re reconvening um, for a couple of hours. And, and each of those convenings are dedicated to a lot of the same research topics that, that you get to, you were exposed to, you know, through the Penn, Penn program, um, whether it be about, um, you know, child development, uh, equity and inclusion work, um, cognitive science, you know, all, all of that. Um, sometimes that information is presented by, you know, outside experts uh, that, that Shadyside retains the, the services of. Sometimes that's sort of shared just by folks, you know, here at the academy that have a unique expertise or, or knowledge base. Um, but, you know, we don't really have um, at this point um, the same kind of fellowship uh, model that um, Gilman has had historically or um, sort of, again, the, the sort of Rolls Royce that's evolved there in, in relationship to, to Penn. Um, I think sort of strategically looking out, um, that's going to be a priority uh, for us moving forward. You know, I, I had the unique <laughs> and sort of challenging opportunity of coming on here uh, just six months before COVID. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of, you know, sort of longer term uh, objectives, particularly ones that are sort of softer in nature and, and sort of more people oriented and, and nuanced, um, you know, weren't really, um, you know, priorities uh, sort of during, you know, the, the haven't been priorities sort of in the bulk of my tenure, which um, has been, you know, more uh, dedicated to sort of extended crisis management. But, yeah. um, you know, I now, I, I now think we're sort of six months out of that. Um, and it's been really nice to see um, conversations at Shadyside sort of at a faculty level, at a governance level, um, you know, rededicated to teaching and learning and, and um, you know, how we how we best inspire kids to make the most of their opportunity here and best equip them to manage and lead in, a, in an evolving, evolving world, which is, you know, um, changing at such a rapid pace. I'm, I'm sure there's chatter at Gilman right now about the, you know, chat GPT, um, artificial intelligence that's now kind of entered uh, the, the um, society and um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just the beginning. Now, have you thought, so I want to talk about chat GPT, but, but maybe we can start um, with just how leadership, I wanted to talk to you a lot about leadership today, but maybe how your leadership style was tested when you became president of Shadyside and all of a sudden there's this massive crisis with a lot of unpredictable variables and unknowns. And now you're the leader of this community. You obviously attended Shadyside, but it was also a return and maybe a new face for a lot of the faculty members there. How did you get through that? And maybe what do you, what do you learn about leadership along that, that, that journey, I guess, mini journey? I, I, yeah. Thanks. It's a great question. I've reflected a lot on it. <laughs> I, you know, being, you know, largely a, a product professionally of independent schools, um, you know, from my perspective as a faculty member, you know, early on in my career and, and through my, my mid-career, um, I think privileged and learned to value from, you know, my leadership, a, a really delegative and, and participatory model, you know, that, that as best as possible can be consensus driven. And so, you know, a lot of my gut instincts um, and, and practice um, sort of comes out of that foundation. Uh, the pandemic, you know, overturned that in, entirely in that um, the, the rate of decision-making that was necessary 
um, as we were sort of in the, the fog of war, um, trying to figure out the best path forward was just really um, quite impossible. And there wasn't um, a complete enough set of facts or um, you know bodies of information from which to have really an educated consensus-oriented conversation in the first place. Um, and so I, I think more than anything else, you know, have learned that um, while a, a, a delegative and participatory approach um, is still, I think, at the, the core of who I am as a leader, there are those moments. Um, and sometimes it's a heightened crisis like the pandemic, but sometimes it's just something that occurs in the day-to-day -day, um, where there does have to be you know, an authoritative uh, approach mm -hmm. um, in which, you know, you're going to, yes, here's some people, but you might make a decision that goes against, you know, the majority of, um, you know, your, your faculty or, or, or your community. I mean, as I look back to the summer of 2020, if we had run a survey or a vote in my faculty about whether or not we'd go back to school um, on any frequency in person, um, you know, I think it would have been, you know, a, a vast majority that would have said, no, 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 let's stay remote. Um, and I listened to medical professionals, you know, here in Pittsburgh and beyond. Um, we did a lot of work uh, over the summer to be as informed as we can uh, or could ab about the latest research. And, you know, I had a number of infectious disease specialists, one of whom is my brother who works over at Hopkins in that capacity. I think you can do this. You know, you, you've got to be able to meet the CDC expectations, which we worked hard to be able to do. But um, you can do this, and and so uh, we again went uh, sort of the um, untrodden path, and we were sort of the first independent school to kind of lean out and say we're going to go back to school in person. And in the late summer, we started talking about every child every day. And, um, you know, that was something that, in retrospect, it was a little bit of a, a gamble for sure, but it was a gamble that pay, paid off. And, and our kids got, I think, a, a more quality experience during that school year than, you know, many of their independent school peer students and certainly a lot of the public schools in this, in this area. Um, we were able to have more days in person for more kids than, than any school in Western Pennsylvania. And so we're really proud of that, but it would not have probably happened um, had I approached the scenario out of kind of my sort of, you know, um, foundational approaches in leadership, which are you know, pretty consensus driven. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I think it taught a valuable lesson about context and, and situation and those moments where you might have to veer left or right from you know, some of those found foundational elements that usually are about you know, a, a more sort of normal, um, you know, pace of, of decision making. Wow. Yeah. I mean, definitely helpful having your, your brother in your ear too, but also just as a, as a new leader at a school, leaning on the community, having conversations with a variety of different people, gathering all the information. I mean, I think, I think as a, as a world, we learned a lot about uh, the value of community and really the value of school because, you know, I think in addition to teachers, a lot of the professions and the jobs that are maybe sometimes taken for granted were the most important 
jobs out there that couldn't go remote really i mean we tried we did zoom we had class online but it just was not was not the same as it is when you're actually in the classroom interacting with people building a community the type of community that you're talking about yeah and i think that's benefit that will continue uh sort of to deliver and um you know sort of have have rewards for kids years into the future because you know the gaps um, that that many kids are are you know still looking to close uh, that that emerge from that time away. Uh, I mean that that sets up sort of um, long term you know sequencing challenges for for a lot of kids uh, years in the future. So it wasn't perfect. Uh, we didn't get everything right, um, and 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 certainly I would approach you know a, a number of different initiatives differently um, in in retrospect. But uh, you know proud of of trusting our collective gut or my my gut about about the way we move forward. But I, I think it's also important, though, to note that I was sort of cloaked in some privilege and maybe survived um, with a level of um, trust that might not have been afforded someone that wasn't an alum of the school, uh, you know, didn't have a, a depth of relationship with the institution that, that, that I had. Um, if I were a head of a new head of school at a independent school in St. Louis or, or Minneapolis or wherever else, not really a known entity. I think the scrutiny um, could have been so overbearing that, you know, my decision-making, you know, never would have been trusted enough to have an impact in, in the classroom. So I acknowledge that um, fully and, and understand that, um, you know, my own biography and connection to the school um, went, went a long, long way in um, you know, sort of road grading. Uh, some of that, some of that decision making, and I hadn't made any mistakes yet either, uh, yeah. because I was brand new, and so there wasn't a track record of saying, "Oh, here we go again." And and so there was sort of a little bit of an inherent trust just just built into where I was in my tenure, or at least, if not trust, uh, let's give them a chance. Yeah, familiarity. Let's give them a chance. Some trust from people that you knew. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so now that we're hopefully beyond that point in history of COVID nineteen, and you're operating as as normal at the, at the school what are some of the things that are maybe taking up your your time and your energy and your mind at this point in your in your tenure as president uh thank you for asking i mean i think um all of these institutions at, at their heart are really about people um and i used to say this at gilman you know we're in a who business and and so in terms of you know, top of mind um, priorities for me, it, it's always about, you know, how do we uh, better express value um, for the, the people that are brave enough to take on the teaching profession and those that support as staff members, um, all, all that happens in our, our classrooms at Shadyside. Um, and, you know, that value gets expressed in, in different ways um, to, to produce morale. Certainly salary is a part of that. Certainly benefits are a part of that. Certainly a professional development um, plan that allows for longer term growth um, without making everybody so sort of fearful that they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, um, you know, going to have their, you know, job held over them. I mean, you got, you got to create models that allow for both, both evaluation and growth to, to coexist. So, um, you know, that's something that's, that's really my, uh, top of mind. Certainly, I think even more so given in the pandemic and, and the impact that it's had on, I think, people's workplace expectations, um, people's workplace experience, it's, it's evolving. And so 
um, you know, we're re really doing all we can to, to pay attention to what makes for a quality work experience in 2022. Um, you know, certainly accessibility um, is a priority for us. Um, we at the sort of front end of my tenure were lucky enough to receive a, a gift that was the largest in the history of the school um, in support of financial aid. Um, and, and so we're continuing to kind of model that gift out and make sure that we maximize it so that um, it you know, benefits the greatest number of, of kids possible and that it inspires others um, to sort of understand the, the value of financial assistance, um, how important it is to make sure that um, independent schools, which you know, have through a lot of their history sort of been designed for um, you know, the, 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 the most affluent um, you know, become something that, that kids from all socioeconomic backgrounds can, can better enjoy. And then um, from a capital projects perspective, uh, Shadyside's a 140-year-old school, um, and 75% of our buildings are 75 years or older. Uh, and so um, any head or president of this school um, has to be thinking in the long term um, about sort of deferred, you know, capital maintenance, um, how to best deal with old buildings, um, and uh, how to make good decisions that you know lead to a more sustainable physical plant um, at at the school. And um, more than anything else, at the moment, that's sort of the albatross, you know, hanging over, over the neck of of the school. And um, there's tremendous opportunity there, and and we've had some great wins on that front. And I think we've developed some really sound principles uh, as it relates to how we're going to, um, you know, master plan into the future and and um, in, in ways that are efficient and and maximize um, you know our our resources. But um, you know, Gilman is fortunate in that a lot of its primary buildings are relatively new, um, and and Cary Hall. Um, was recently renovated, um, and and so that buys it, you know, another 50 or so years. But you have a fairly new middle school and a fairly new lower school. Uh, one of our two lower schools uh, was a mansion um, built in 1882, mm. um, and the other was uh, is all, the, the middle school is also a former mansion that's been sort of um, added upon and expanded, but. You know, I think was built in you know 1905 or 1910 or something like that. And so, the future of those two facilities um, are are really top of mind um, for for the moment for me and and certainly my board of trustees and a lot of faculty conversation about it as well. Love it! Wow, I'm sure those those buildings are beautiful, but yeah, definitely need to have conversations about the future. Um, awesome, that sounds good. Uh, so so Bart. I was thinking a lot. I wanted to talk to you about Breadloaf. I did my first summer at Breadloaf um, this past summer, and I'm really excited to go back. Vermont is a special place, and I and I got a lot out of the classes that I took, the professors that I had. I know that you watched one of the, the podcasts with, who was it, Brian Wolf maybe? Yep. Brian Wolf. I'm, I'm actually going to see him this weekend. I'm going up to Yale for a Model UN conference and we're going to get lunch and I think I'm going to get a tour of the Yale Art Museum which no better person to do it with than Brian Wolf um, but I'd love to just hear about your experience at Breadloaf and, and maybe about how that program and maybe the humanities has influenced your role as a school leader I look around at a lot of heads of schools across the country and a lot of them 
some of them went to Breadloaf, sure, but a lot of them are humanities teachers in their previous lives, I guess, in their previous role at, at, at certain schools. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how humanities and maybe Breadloaf and the, and the type of curriculum that you learned and taught uh, during most of your career has impacted you now that you're president at Shadyside. You're probably familiar with the comedian John Mulaney. I do know. I know who that is. Yeah. I'm sure Chesare does too. He's got this line um, where he says, yeah, I think he went to Georgetown and he says, you know, I spent a hundred thousand dollars or my parents spent a hundred thousand um, dollars to be an English major and be assigned books. I didn't read. <laughs> and you know, I, I, I did a little better than John Mulaney in college, but probably not profoundly better. Uh, than, than he did. And so I, I think there was something about going to Breadloaf, um, you know, when my frontal lobe had fully dropped um, in my mid-20s that allowed me to make more of um, an engagement with great literature than I was able to sort of with all the distraction that's a part of high school and, and, and college life. There was just a maturity um, that I think helped me to value that experience, um, have deeper engagement um, in, in the classroom, but uh, to really invest almost all my time, um, you know, but for the evenings, uh, hold up in a, a library somewhere, either on the top of Breadloaf Mountain or, or down at Middlebury College with a book and a highlighter and a, a notebook. And, um, you know, you, you'd be there and six hours would go by um, and you don't even realize it because you're, you're so immersed in whatever narrative or, or criticism that you're reading. I just value the, the opportunity to have six to eight weeks over the summer as an adult, semi-mature person mm -hmm. um, to engage in something um, that had maybe no practical application in the world, but but would feed you know my my soul and and my development as a as a thinker and and human being. Uh, I think the other benefit of a breadloaf, for sure, one of the other primary benefits of breadloaf is just the exposure to. Um, some of the nation's, you know, leading uh, professors and, and experts in the space and just how informal the relationship, sort of much like a prep school, um, you know, the, 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 the students um, uh, can, can, can have with, you know, people like a, a Paul Muldoon, um, you know, here's arguably the greatest um, living English language poet um, that, that we have at the moment. And, uh, you know, you're sitting next to him at lunch uh, mm -hmm. talking about the Yankees or whatever else it is. Um, those kind of interactions were, were really valuable. Um, it, it's really an all-star all -star faculty. Um, you know, I, I found myself uh, drinking a beer one night, um, you know, within two or three feet and actually having conversation with Seamus Heaney and Paul Muldoon. Like, it's just like, what, what? You know, yeah. how does this? They're talking to me and, you know, interested in, you know, what I have to say about you know, whatever poetry reading, you know, we just came from. So uh, that was really remarkable. And then I also just love the, um, you know, it really is a wonderful affinity space for, you know, high school and middle school English teachers. And um, I, I didn't have sort of in those early days of teaching, I was working so hard uh, um, during the school year. I never really had, um, you know, a rich social life beyond the schoolhouse. And um, some of my most lasting adult friendships have come out of those summers, you know, in Vermont or at Oxford um, with, with Breadloaf 
loafers, a lot of whom are in independent schools and a lot of whom I, you know, continue to cross paths with, um, you know, in my life as, as a head of school. And, um, you know, I, I actually hired uh, here at Shadyside, a head of senior school, um, Trixie Sabandayo, uh, two years ago, who was a, a schoolmate of mine at Breadloaf, and her husband, uh, Josh Frechette, is our associate um, director of athletics, and he also was in that same class, and they met each other uh, hmm. at, at Breadloaf. So, um, you know, it continues to pay uh, important dividends in my life. And I would just say, lastly, um, in terms of its practical application to the work that I do as a head of school, um, I really grew as a writer uh, over the course of those five years, largely because I dedicated real time um, to the craft of it and cared deeply about it, but I had tremendous feedback. And though I was largely writing literary essays, there was something that all of that facilitated that I think has made me a better writer and communicator, you know, certainly in my teaching life, but now as a head of school where you probably see this with Henry. I mean, a, a good part of that job is what you put on paper in response to critical events and moments in the life of the school. And um, I, I feel like I've done that largely pretty effectively. I've made some mistakes, but largely pretty effectively. And I, I credit Breadloaf with a lot of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about being being an adult and just having the rare opportunity to you know, sit in a chair for six, seven weeks in the summer, beautiful weather, middle of Vermont, and just read great works of literature and write on your own. I mean, it's just, it's even more uh, valuable, I think, than, than the college experience, at least for me, because I was so busy. My hands were in so many different things in college that when I'm at Breadloaf, it's the only thing you have to do is just read this book and come to class the next day to talk to brilliant people about it. I mean, it's it's a very rare and pretty amazing experience. Or, or if it's Brian Wolf, maybe um, stare at a painting right. for, for 20 minutes, right? I mean, I, I think that was uh, incredible. He was without you know question one of the most influential teachers that I had there, largely because of the sort of interdisciplinary element that he brought to the study of literature with you know his expertise in, in art history. Uh, the first day of his class, it was entitled uh, the, the the course um, "Civilization and Its Discontents," which was a, you know a play on the the Freud, um, and he uh, showed us a painting called Watson and, and the Shark. Yep, yep. Uh, I saw that. Pop. I saw that in and person a couple weeks ago in D.C. It's pretty cool. It's it's incredible and. From that image, and it was a lecture with some, you know, interaction and Q and A. But from that image, which is in part a simple image, but also a, a complex one, he basically, you know, communicated um, really resonant truths about almost everything we grapple with in American society and civilization. You know, even then, whenever it was, two thousand three, two thousand four. It's like. Oh my goodness, that's right. And it seems totally legitimate. You're right. This this image is the key to understanding America. Um, <laughs> and, and I felt that way with him after 90, 90 minutes, um, you know, at a depth that I, I don't know that I've experienced uh, since then. So, um, uh, and, and as a teacher, I, as a result of that class, uh, continued to always try to, to make art and, and um, you know, really compelling imagery, a, a part of a lot of what I did um, in, in the, the teaching of literature. 
Yeah, it's a really good point. I remember that he did the same thing in our class this summer where he pointed out, here's the, here's the id, here's the ego, here's the super ego, the different layers of the painting. And it's just, I mean, he's, he's mind-blowing, partly because he's so passionate about what he's talking about. I mean, he's up there, and he's so, he's so into it, and it t totally rubs off, um, and it makes you realize what a good teacher is, somebody who just cares so much about what they're talking about, is really into it, would, would do this all day long if they could. I mean, I remember doing the podcast with him a few months ago, and I could have talked to that guy all day because he was... It just, it just rubs off on you. Well, Henry Smythe always talked about, you know, as we discussed teaching and, and what we wanted for Gilman, um, authenticity. Uh, that, that, that for, for Henry, and I think for, you know, certainly me, um, is a, you know, primary character trait in the classroom. There, there are a lot of different approaches and um, pedagogies that can be effective um, if kids understand that that the way the teacher is um, engaging them is is authentic to to who they are, and that there's not a pretense or um, you know an effort to be something you know other than what's at the core of that that adult's being. So I was looking at the website for Shady Side a little bit and looking at some of the core values and and things that you practice there that reminded me a lot of of Gilman's uh, the Gilman Five here, um, but that leads me to a question about what you and the school really looks to develop in, in the boys and the girls there in terms of character and what you hope that they graduate with and go out into the world with. Yeah, uh, thank you for taking the time to, to research that, Jake. Uh, it, it's actually pretty funny. I've thought about this a lot. So Shady Side has five guiding principles um, that you know uh, echo or reflect a lot of what's represented in the Gilman Five. So, so Shady Side's Gilman principles are Gilman principles, Freudian slip, um, guiding principles are uh, kindness, honesty, respect, responsibility, and safety. Um, and there's a lot of thought, or there was a lot of thought historically into the sequencing of that. We talk about kindness um, sort of more uh, probably than any of those other values. Um, it's sort of the, the lead for us. Uh, Pittsburgh is the city of um, Fred Rogers. And certainly that's kind of his legacy civically in, in town. And um, I think it's had a lot of influence, not just on Shadyside, but, but organizations um, across the city of Pittsburgh. Um, I, I think that, you know, any success or any endeavor of meaning for, for children, um, certainly while they're here in school and, and into their adult life, uh, begins with, you know, their capacity for, for, for kindness um, and, and to treat others with, uh, compassion, um, with a face of humility, um, and, you know, uh, an effort to kind of understand, uh, the challenge that, that someone else is, uh, in, in, you know, wrestling with, grappling with, in, in, engaged in. And, um, so, you know, if you were to pop into one of our lower school assemblies or, um, you know, any of the character education initiatives that are built around our guiding principles, they're all um, really valuable, but the one that seems to land best with our kids and, and our families is you know, certainly the, the value of, of kindness. And I don't I don't think kindness is on the Gilman, is one of the Gilman Five, if I remember correctly. It's not, um, but it is interesting that you say that because the course that you taught here when you were here, at least when we overlapped, was leadership and character and literature. And when you left, I adopted that course and I changed some things around and kind of made it my own over the last couple of years. 
and you know we study we study great historical leaders we read man's search for meaning we read this year when breath becomes air really uh meaningful and moving texts and on the last day of class i always feel like i have to give my crew of seniors one last parting word of advice as they go on to semester two and college and the rest of their life and the thing that i always come back to at the end on the last day is just to be kind and that's the that's usually the message um and this year i showed actually a commencement speech by one of my favorite american writers living today is uh george saunders from syracuse short story writer he wrote lincoln and the bardo recently and i think he just came out with a new book but in 20 i want to say 2013 he did a commencement speech at syracuse where his words of advice for all of the seniors graduating from his school was just to be kind. And I think that's, I think that's really important for a school to, to value and to, to instill in, in students. Yeah, I, I agree, Jake. I mean, you can never be wrong approaching a situation leading with kindness. Um, and we face a lot of complex scenarios in organizations like Gilman and Shadyside and, and certainly um, you know, in offices like mine. And um, I've, I've found they're almost all softened or at least, um, you know, better minimized um, sort of just through uh, an effort to be, you know, compassionate and to err uh, on the sign of kindness. And, and oftentimes that involves perhaps um, extending kindness to someone who, based on their behavior, you know, could arguably not deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so I, I think leading with that always, always makes, um, always makes a difference. And, and certainly also, again, when you're the head of school, um, if, if you approach someone with edge, um, or, or with a sharpness, um, that gets received, you know, 10 X just based on, you know, the, your title. And, and so I'm always reminding myself of that. Um, and uh, again, doing whatever I can to, to live out that, that guiding principle of, of the school. Um, always hard. We're all human, but. Um, yeah, there's but, a, go ahead. No, no, please. There's, there's a quote that I never really thought much of until I started teaching for a couple of years. And it's, it's something about, you're not going to remember what somebody told you or, you know, something else, but you're going to remember how they made you feel. And I think that as a teacher and a person in a community is, is really a, a lot to what you're saying about kindness is you're, you're not going to remember a lot as you know, from my class or from our daily interactions or whatever, but you're going to remember how you maybe feel when you interacted with me. And I think that's really important to keep in mind in a community like, like ours. Yeah. I, um, I appreciate you saying that. I'm so glad to hear that you uh, continued the, the, the leadership course, I, I'm sure that, you know, putting your own spin on it, you made it an even better experience for for the students. Um, and there was a ton of leadership theory that, you know, I included in that course just to kind of provide some structure and and some good good frameworks for looking into the narratives and, and literature that we're reading. But um, there is a simplicity sort of as you sort of suggest in, you know, your parting words to your students that be kind um, and uh, a, a lot will follow. I think, I think the other thing too that I learned through that course 
um, and some of this was initially theory-based, is like when we think about leaders and leadership, we, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on that person um, as an individual. We don't often think about the context or um, sort of the, the condition um, or, or circumstances that are affecting the followers uh, at that moment. And there are a lot of scenarios where leaders probably can't ever be successful just because of where the followers happen to be. Um, and there are a lot of leaders that are probably celebrated um, for you know, their accomplishments or, or their organization or community's accomplishments um, when, when really there's probably undue credit to the quality of you know, the followership um, and, and, and the, the brilliance or resilience, whatever it happens to be of that you know, community responding to the leader or, um, you know, in, enhancing whatever the, the leader has initially brought brought to bear. And I, I think about that a ton, too, and thought about it a lot through COVID. Yeah, it's interesting. I think when I first started teaching the class, I was trying to find a definition for a leader, or come up with the perfect examples for figures to study who are leaders historically or currently. And I I learned more and more through teaching the class that there's not one image or characteristic that embodies what a leader should be or is. I think it's a lot of different aspects and there are different types of leaders out there. I mean, I, I use one of my good friends who was on my team in college as an example. And this guy never played really. He was, you know, he was good enough to play. He just never got on the field. He, uh, wasn't the biggest, strongest guy out there. He wasn't the most skilled guy out there, but he was the most positive, energetic person in the locker room you've ever seen. And even when he was, you know, last on the bench or not getting what he deserved or had every right to be, you know, complaining, he was positive and he, he lifted the entire boat of the team in a way that captains didn't and senior leaders didn't and he this is part of his makeup and his personality and when i think about leadership he's he's a person that i would say is a leader that a lot of people maybe wouldn't yeah, i think the, the, yeah the, the uh critical term for that is you know informal you know leadership right i mean i, I think um sometimes within that follower group you know so the, the the lack of a title or or formal designation um, can can create a sort of um, momentum and and level of influence that you know somebody with a title probably is is more limited in. Awesome. Well, well, Bart. Uh, one thing that we have done on the podcast that you might have seen is we we usually do a book recommendation. So something that you've read recently or in your life that has made an impact on you. And I'm curious what you decided to to bring in here. Yeah, I love I love this question, and I've I've really enjoyed. Um, you know, seeing what what various people on on the pod have uh, have put forward, you know, I, I want to certainly um, speaking to a boys' school audience um, to think a little bit about my own sort of adolescent development as a reader and uh, a, a book that sort of maybe was a part of uh, my development um, as a reader and and thinker. Um, I was very young. Uh, for my class at, at Shadyside. Uh, I think I was the youngest boy um, at, at the time. Uh, and I developed even later than that um, and, 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 and really sort of struggled early on um, in, in the classroom and on ball fields, uh, socially, 
et cetera. Um, I came new to the school in sixth grade. And, and so, um, you know, my middle school experience was what, not really one that fostered um, an engagement with the written word or, or uh, reading because a lot of it was just moving too fast for me. Um, but I was a hoops junkie uh, at the time. And I, I had season tickets to pit basketball with my dad, who was a, a, an academic uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. And um, that was sort of at the height of the Big East um, conference. And so I, I, I just became sort of a hoops junkie. And that occupied a lot of my bandwidth in sixth and seventh grade. And um, somebody that my father knew really well um, recommended to me a book that was about 10 years old at the time called Heaven is a Playground. Hmm. And it's written by a, a sports writer who's still pretty well known, wrote for SI for a long time, Rick Talander, um, Northwestern grad. And uh, he, sort of before he was known as a journalist, um, spent a summer uh, living in Brooklyn um, playing playground basketball. And he had had a largely suburban and, and rural uh, existence. And he, um, you know, brought his notebook with him and uh, his, um, you know, open mind and just spent the summer sort of chronicling his, the relationships that he developed on um, playground courts in Brooklyn, um, some of the culture of uh, playground basketball in New York City. And um, he, he got to know uh, Bernard King, um, who then became later on a, a legend with the, the New York Knicks uh, as a teenager, just sort of playing um, on those courts and sort of immersed himself into that environment. And, um, so, so for me, it, it was, uh, you know, certainly not high literature. It's never going to be a part of, you know, the canon alongside Hamlet. Um, but it was written with an attention to craft and storytelling that in my little seventh grade brain, I think brought me into the world of literature out of something that I was really interested in um, at the time. And then I picked up, you know, a lot of other books that um, came out of that sort of tradition of immersive journalism. Uh, George Plimpton um, is another example of that. He wrote a ton, uh, you know, um, where he would put himself in these scenarios, often in an athletic context. Um, he did a year call, uh, with the Detroit Lions and then wrote a book called Paper Lion that I also read. And then Friday Night Lights came along. And so that, that was my sort of reading, you know, uh, interest in seventh or eighth grade. Um, and, and it really then, I think, fostered a little bit more attention and, and interest in some of the, you know, more traditional great works that I came across in, in high school, an appreciation for a narrative, an appreciation for a turn of phrase. And I would say an appreciation for the depth of story that, you know, went into a lot of the characterization of, you know, some of the people that Talander met. Um, that that summer and a lot of the compassion and celebration of, of those. So um, anyway, I, I think that we would be well served as educators um, to provide students um, reading material, particularly sort of in, in pre-adolescence, adolescence as sort of their minds are you know, sort of coming to mature for the first time um, as academic beings and uh, critical thinkers um, by, by putting stories that they're interested in them, uh, interested in and um, you know, uh, letting, letting their interest in reading kind of grow from there. Yeah. I think that's an awesome point. Um, I think about it all the time because, you know, I, when I give out books at the beginning of the year and, and choose certain texts that I think are going to be compelling and interesting and are part of the curriculum and it's not for everyone, not everyone is going to like every single one of these books, you know, and there should be 
I think I think you're right. There should be more choice in students finding texts that they're compelled by, that they're interested in, because that's how you foster a love for reading. That's how we both, you know, we went into the library and chose books that we liked and that spoke to us at the moment we read them. And, you know, I think I remember reading Where the Redfern Grows when I was younger, and that was a you know, random book, but I loved it. And I love books about dogs and I don't love books about dogs now, but it started my love for reading. And that origin story is really important for everybody when they're trying to, to find something that they're interested in when it comes to books. Yeah. I think the question is often, you know, what's the space in which a child likes to play? And, and there can be a ton of learning that just comes out of, you know, a recognition and extension of that, of that space. Um, the epigraph to this book is by the poet um, G.K. Chesterton, and it's from where the title is drawn. Uh, it is not only possible to say a great deal in praise of play, it is really possible to say the highest things in praise of it. It might reasonably main, be maintained that the true object of all human life is play. Earth is a task garden. Heaven is a playground. Uh, it's like, you know, that, that I think is, um, you know, good good medicine for educators and and all that seek to have um you know formative environments for kids um you know start with where they play and uh i think the the learning will follow yeah it's really important uh in the art room i'm thinking about the art room you know when you become a great artist you have to start with messing around and playing and finding what your style is and you're not given really an assignment right off the bat you're just kind of doing your thing you're doodling you know and I think the same can be true for reading. I think the same is true for basketball. You know, you become a great basketball player in the backyard first or a great lacrosse player in the backyard. So I love that message. Well, Bart, thank you very much for, uh, for coming in today and joining us on the episode. It was great to catch up with you and see you again. Um, hope everyone is doing well in your, in your family and in Pittsburgh. I still have not been to Pittsburgh, and that's another thing that I – wanted to ask you about a little bit today was, you know, Pittsburgh and some of your favorite things to do in that, in that city, but hopefully sometime soon can get up and, and visit you and, and check out Shadyside. Yeah. You'll, you'll have to pay us a visit three and a half hours, uh, you know, along uh, route 70, uh, some, some beautiful flat territory, but uh, we, we would love to host you Jake at, at Shadyside or, or in Pittsburgh. I'm so appreciative of the opportunity. This is definitely, only going to be one of the highlights uh, of the year for me to, to be a part of the, the Path to Follow podcast. Um, I had opportunity during my my tenure at at Gilman to, to get to know Mr. Finney a little bit and, and shared a couple of meals with him. And um, I, I just think the work you're doing is such a wonderful way among so many um, that, that Gilman honors uh, his his legacy and, um, you know, extends it into the life of the boys that are that are there today. So um, and as, uh, as someone that first engaged you, um, at, at Gilman on zoom, by the way, before zoom was cool, right? That's just true. Want a little credit for that early adopter. <laughs> um, if not for, for, for zoom, there might not have been any Jake, uh, at Gilman. Uh, but, uh, nonetheless, it, it's, it's nice full circle to be on the other end of the interview, uh, with you now, whatever it is, five to six years later. That's totally true. I forgot about that. It was a it was a video call the first time we met. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well Bart, well, great. thanks thank you. to you and Tesseray, and uh, we'll we'll reconnect again soon. Let's do it. Great to see you. Thank you very much again. 
Thank you. See ya.